You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Hi, everyone. So we're reading from Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. If you would flip there on your Bibles or your devices. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. These are the true words of the living God. Probs, good afternoon everyone. Nice to see you and welcome to RHC. Um, we are two Sundays away, two sermons away from wrapping up the book of Acts and I hope it's been encouraging and helpful to you and we're going to get close to the end today but not quite at the end. You have to come back next week to see what happens at the end of Acts. Friends, why don't we pray and ask God to work in our hearts today as we continue our service. Father, we come before you, we have, as we sung earlier, we have no life apart from you, and so we pray that you would open our hearts and that your spirit would be at work to make us alive to your truth and your word today. We pray that we would meet with you, that you would build us up and challenge us where we need to be challenged, affirm us in your love, and send us out, Lord God, as your children. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, the famous um, French writer Voltaire, who died nearly 250 years ago, he famously said, in the beginning, God made man in his image. And ever since, man has been repaying the favor. What does he mean? Well, we try to construct God in our own image. We think he's just like us. And God himself in Psalm 50 says something very similar as he's rebuking uh, people in Psalm 50 verse 21. He says, you thought that I was altogether like you. Friends, what comes to mind when you think about God? What is God like? How do we know what God's like? And how does knowledge of who God is and what God is like affect your life on a daily basis? The book of Acts is has been concerned with the spreading of the good news of the resurrected king, Jesus. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul, this, uh, this apostle of Jesus, is making his way to Rome. This is in fulfillment of Jesus' command for uh, his disciples to go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's also in fulfillment of God's word to Paul, 
that he would get to Rome and testify there before Caesar and before um, kings. And so the big idea of Acts that we're seeing is about the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. And now in God's providence, just before Paul gets to Rome, we see in God's providence that Paul's shipwreck leads to the proclamation of the gospel and to another small island, it's about half the size of Singapore, Malta, uh, uh, having an encounter with Paul where he's able to share and see something of God's kingdom come. And what we're going to see is that God's plans and purposes for mission are being worked out in all circumstances, even through the adversity of a shipwreck. And it's in this context of Paul arriving at the small island of Malta that we see uh, an amazing contrast between the religious lifestyle of those on the island and what Paul introduces or reveals to them about the Christian faith. There's a great contrast. The hope that, Paul's, that, that Paul brings through physical healing is deeply at odds with the islanders' views of deity. And I think we can maybe summarize the islanders' views of God as marked by the religious impulse that many people have, very common in our world, whereas Paul reveals Christianity's view of our gracious God. So today, we're simply going to look at these two main ideas in contrast. Those are our two main points of our sermon. And then we're going to apply it right at the end by uh, seeing what this means for us today. So let's dive in in verse 1, the religion of the islanders. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. It's an island in the Mediterranean that you can still go to today. And Paul lands there after having swum to shore with everyone else on board. Um, And if you were here last Sunday, you would have heard about this. And it says in verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. These native people, another word for them is barbarians. I know that doesn't sound very pleasant. Um, but it's the same word in the ESV. And if you just flip over in your Bible one chapter, you'll see that in Romans chapter one, uh, it's the same word that Paul uses to talk about his ministry, where Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. And Paul's not talking about like savages who don't use you know, chopsticks or knives and forks. Paul is talking really, this word refers to people who are far away from the covenant of God. They are estranged and alienated from God and very, very far away from him. And these are those kinds of people that Paul knows he's called to to share the gospel with. And so Paul finds himself on this island. And what's interesting is that when we see this reference to these people, we uh, might be surprised to find that Luke shows us that these people treated Paul with great kindness. So much so that their kindness is mentioned in verse 2 at the beginning of the passage, and it's alluded to in verse 10 at the end. So in verse 2, it says, The native people showed us unusual kindness. They kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it, it had begun to rain and was cold. And verse 10, They honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is like your auntie who you're like going off on a long trip, and she comes to Changi Airport, and she's like got all these home-baked cookies you know, goodies, and she's like sending you with all your food. These people were were like this. And what's amazing to see is that these Maltese people who are described as natives and barbarians and those who are far from God and from his promises, they are kind people. They are sweet people. They are wonderful people. It's as though Luke is showing us or telling us that those people that need to hear God's word and be redeemed and be saved from their sins 
are not just the kind of particularly evil, horrible, sneering people far out there, but even the nicest, kindest people are deeply in need of a Savior as well. And friends, as Christians, we know that though we seek to love people and display the fruit of the Spirit, we are not saved and justified, as we sang this afternoon, by our kindness or our niceness. In fact, often Christians are not very nice people. But Christians are those who have recognized that we indeed are sinners. We need a Savior because there is a holy God in this world. And in order for us to be saved before this God, we need to put our full hope and confidence in Jesus. And so Paul is, through God's providence, now going to be on mission to these very nice people, these islanders. But we see that these islanders are clearly far from God, uh, seen particularly in how they engage in our next couple of verses, verse 3 to 6. In verse 3, it says, Paul, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. I mean, this is, I mean, Paul is having a really bad day, right? He's just been shipwrecked. Now he's building a fire and he gets, he gets a snake bite by this viper. Now, friends, snakes uh, and serpents in the Bible and often in that kind of culture where it was seen as kind of evil omens. In the Bible, at least, we know Genesis 3, um, Satan, the evil one, is depicted as a serpent who comes to lead the world away from God into sin. And how does the serpent do that? By distorting Adam and Eve's perception of God and view of God. Did God really say trying to reframe or re-image or, or reform the, the picture of God in, in Adam and Eve's minds. And the serpent leads Adam and Eve astray, leading the world into sin. And so Genesis 3 promises an ongoing conflict between the serpent or the evil one and God's people. Yet there's a promise that one day a child will come, someone will come, and with his heel he will, he will crush the head of the serpent, though He himself will be injured. His heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he will crush its head. And so Paul here gets bitten by this viper. Now, I want us to have a look at verse 4 and to see how these native people interpret what's happened to Paul. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're like, man, the, the gods are at work here. This guy, he's obviously a really bad guy. He was shipwrecked. That was obviously the gods' justice against him. But he managed to escape that. But now the gods have finally got him. And he couldn't escape. Now a viper has taken him out. The natives think that this is the work of one of their deities in the Greek pantheon called Daiki. Daiki. This is the Greek goddess of justice. It's pronounced just like Nike, which is the Greek goddess of victory. That's where your shoes, the name from your shoes come from, the Greek goddess of victory. Absolutely. That's not an exaggeration. I'm not making a joke. This really is, is true. And the Greek goddess of, of, of uh, victory was Nike. The Greek goddess of, of uh, justice was Daiki. And they have a look at Paul, who's been shipwrecked, and now suddenly uh, finds himself uh, bitten by a viper. And they're like, man, justice has got this guy. What they, what they have, friends, is a, a rather wooden view of God's justice in this world. It's very immediate. It's very cause and effect. It's fairly transactional. 
So much so that you can interpret all of the actions or things that happen in this world you know, based on how the gods are feeling towards you in a certain point of time. This is how they understand this is what their God is like. This is how they understand what's happened to Paul. This is their vision and view of the world. It's a highly, uh, a highly wooden view of God's justice in the world. Now, some of us can you know, what, read this now, 2,000 years later, and we say, that's a, that's a pretty silly way for these people to, to think. And yet, friends, I think for many of us, even as Christians who have God's word, we can find ourselves inclined to think about God in similar ways. Maybe some of you have had experiences where something very serious or wrong happens in your life, and you find yourself wondering, is this because I sinned really badly? Is there, like some, is there some like major sin that I, 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 I'm not, like, not aware of, and God is like being vindictive and trying to get me back? Or maybe something does happen to you that you know is completely unjust and wrong, and you're waiting eagerly for God to quickly come and resolve all of it, and when it doesn't get resolved so immediately, you're thinking to yourself, doesn't God care? Or maybe you've got a very serious situation happening in a week or two. Maybe an interview you've been waiting for for a long time. Your dream job. Maybe a date you've been waiting for for a long time that you finally got. And in the week and the build up to that, suddenly you find yourself acting entirely differently. You have a whole week, seven days of a a pure streak of quiet times. Every day you're praying. You confess all of your sins. The things that you attempted to do before, you're like not able to do. Why? Because, you th- I mean, God, God's watching and you need all the favor you can get now. These people, friends, they have this view of Paul and they, it tells us, I mean, kind of in contrast to what it told us about their kindness at the beginning, it says they were waiting for Paul to die. They're watching. It says, he, however, verse 5, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Now, let's think about this, friends. This is reasoning about what God is like, in a sense, from the bottom up, from our own experiences and circumstances. Like Voltaire said, we are, in many ways, assuming that God thinks like us. We think God is altogether like us. Many of us do just think God thinks just like us. We've made God in our own image. And the problem is that this is not a reliable way for us to relate to God as seen here. This is not consistent, we'll see later on, with God's character and his nature. This is not consistent with reality. And we know in life our circumstances are changing all the time. And we see that here as well. Have a look. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a god. Now, that's a pretty drastic change, right? That's a pretty drastic change. They are deducing again and misreading the nature, what God is like, and who even deities are by the events around them. Now they're ascribing some kind of status to Paul himself. They are still confused. They are still way off base. Now, friends, this creates a kind of whiplash. Can you imagine living this way, where we are being tossed to and fro? If you ever played those games, 
as a kid with a little like flower and you pick a petal. He loves me, he loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not, sorry. That's what we do with God sometimes, right? We take our circumstances. I got a big bonus this year. God loves me. Then I saw the inflation. He loves me not. <laughs> I wake up in the morning. I check my phone. Manchester United loses 2-0 to Spurs, my son's team. God obviously loves me not. Then I check my fantasy Premier League and I crushed my son last night. He loves me, right? We look at our circumstances and we, we think this is how God is disposed toward us in, in this moment. Now, friends, this way of understanding God actually has commonalities amongst many people and many kinds of man-made religions. And we are inclined to adopt this kind of thinking in our faith as well. Now, the Christian Bible talks about two different kinds of revelation or way that we know God. Something called general revelation, where we basically, we can deduce certain things about God from nature. Sunsets and mountains and various things, we'll see that in a moment. And then special revelation, where God speaks to us. God reveals himself to us. We'll come back to that in a moment. General revelation, again, if you just turn over one page in your Bibles to Romans 1, from verse 18 or 19 on, Paul actually explains this. General revelation does reveal there's a God. You can look at mountains and the sunset and, and human beings, and you can deduce that there is a God. Creation, all of nature, testifies that there is a creator. He's of infinite power, Paul says. There are things we can deduce from uh, creation. God is overflowing in abundance and generosity. And yet, Paul says, that our sinful state means that we suppress what can be known of God throughout creation. Our sin distorts our view of God. It distorts what we know of Him, and we suppress it. To put it another way, friends, many of us in this world can't deny the existence of God. Many of us feel the need for him, particularly maybe when you're in great need or you are sick or ill or there's some crisis that you're going through. But sin affects us in that it suppresses the true knowledge of God and even leads us to distort some of God's attributes to make us feel more comfortable with God. So for example, so, and, and this is because of our sin, we simply can't stand before a a holy God in all of his glory and, and just feel okay. But yet we know there must be a deity and a, a God out there. Our, our sin therefore suppresses what we see and r realize about God and begins to distort how we perceive him. So we think about a category like justice. We hope for a God of justice, but we really want God to judge all of our enemies and those outside of us. We assume God understands me and my motives, so he doesn't judge me the same way that he judges other people. We rank sins in various ways. And amazingly, all of our sins tend to not be as bad as the sins that everyone else commits. We excuse our own and we assume, you know, God understands us. Or maybe we just simply import the way that this world works, the way that Singapore works, with being validated by your grades and your marks and your achievements and your job and your performance. We import all that kind of thinking into our faith and think, oh, God's just like a bigger, more powerful version of Singapore Inc. Friends, this is a religious kind of dynamic that so many find themselves stuck in. We shape God in our own image. But friends, such a God 
cannot help us because such a God doesn't exist. Such a God cannot save us for such a God doesn't exist. And this is the islander's dynamic. They've used their hands or their deduction to mold a God that they can manage. It's a little bit like God's people coming out of Egypt with God rescues by the blood of the lamb. They go through the Red Sea. There's manna from heaven. God's provided so lavishly. And yet after a while, Moses goes up the mountain to get the law and God's people get impatient. And so they decide, let's make a God. We don't have to wait for Moses to come down the mountain. Who's this God we have to wait for? He's speaking and thunder and lightning. Let's make something manageable. Let's go and create our own God that we can bow down and we'll give him the credit for bringing us out of Egypt. And they go and make the golden calf and they bow down and worship. Idolatry. Friends, all idolatry is a way for us to avoid having to deal with the true God. Our sinful impulse rightly leads us to withdraw from coming near to the true and holy God. And every false religion recognizes something of the Creator's existence through general revelation, but yet sin obscures and makes us want to have a manageable deity. Friends, all of this is the work of the serpent in Genesis 3. In other words, we can say all of us have been bitten by the real snake of sin. But the Bible shows us that the true nature of God can be known. And it is known because God chooses in his grace to reveal it to us and show us what he is like. And this is what we see alluded to demonstrated in our second point grace to the islanders in contrast we see paul's response when he hears that uh, publius's relative is ill verse 8 it happened that the father of publius lay sick with fever and dysentery actually it was known that there was this like maltese um, virus that often used to make people very very ill it's like historically known and this guy probably had that and they called, they, and Paul visited and prayed, put his hands on him, and he healed him. Now, friends, if Paul had simply adopted the fatalistic view of the islanders, this might have been the result of their deity justice's intervention. He could have just said, well, Publius is dead. I mean, you've obviously sinned. This is justice, you know. But Paul doesn't do that. What does Paul do? Paul hears there's illness, there's death and decay coming into this world, and Paul maybe not knowing that what would happen, beseeches God, he, he goes to visit, he lays his hands on him, he prays for him, he asks for God to heal him, and remarkably, the prayer does result in healing. It's not guaranteed, this is a, a proper miracle that takes place. If it happened every time, it wouldn't be a miracle. But he prays for him, and God is gracious, and he is healed. No doubt Paul, uh, some people may comment here and say, well, the, the passage is not clear that Paul explicitly preaches the gospel, and I acknowledge that it's not. But you can't have read the first 27 chapters of Acts without realizing every time Paul opens his mouth, the gospel just tumbles out. And Paul was here for three months. And Romans 1 says Paul is under obligation to preach the gospel to barbarians, of which this passage refers to these natives as being barbarians three times. 
moreover, this account in chapter 28 is where these uh, islanders refer to Paul as a god. And actually, this has happened one time before. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, I think, are visiting somewhere. And through a whole series of circumstances, all those people begin to chant out, this is the voice of the gods. And they're called one Zeus and the other, another Greek god. And Paul just about goes apoplectic. And he tears his clothes and cries out, no. And then he preaches the gospel to them. So there's no doubt Paul is preaching to them as well. But Paul is praying. The islanders bring the others and they are healed by God. Friends, what is going on here? This is a merciful breaking in by God, a sign that points to the nature of a God who loves us and is in the process of restoring the world. These islanders, friends, you and I, through this passage, are being shown a view of God that is entirely different from the one that they've had. A view of God that has relationship where you can call on His name, generosity, mercy, and grace right at its core. This is a grace, friends, that comes from God that shows that, yes, He acknowledges this world is broken, but He's not left it alone. He's not walked away and left a few abstract principles like justice and retribution in charge. No, this is a God who responds to our prayers and is at work in it, bringing grace into a broken world. Now, I spoke earlier how in general revelation, we know that in a God exists. There are certain things we can know about God, but we are inclined to suppress His true nature and then construct God in our image. But as I said earlier, the Bible talks about another kind of revelation, special revelation, where God speaks and reveals himself to us. Hebrews 1 says, God in many ways, in various times, has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is how God speaks to us. And Paul demonstrates something of this God who breaks in through the demonstration of his miracles and his preaching. Now, Herman Barvink, a Dutch theologian who died about 100 years ago, had a wonderful insight. He said, you know, general revelation in this fallen world that we live in leads to a lot of religion. There's a lot of worship happening around the world. All kinds of deities, all kinds of works, whether that's actual bowing down to deities or, or, or our own idolatries, general revelation leads to all kinds of religion where we try to manage God from the bottom up through our own works. But in special revelation, God comes to reach down to us to find us the true God comes to make himself known and says, here I am, worship me, that we can rightly know him and we can draw near to him through his provision. Let's double click on this. How does God reveal himself? Well, let's look at one example. I spoke about the golden calf earlier. After the idolatry of Exodus 32, Moses prays to God after interceding for these sinners. He says, God, show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, God comes and gives him just a small glimpse of his glory. And what happens? Moses hears a voice, a voice, friends, speaking. The Lord, the Lord, gracious. How does God reveal himself? What is he like? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Oh, friends, God is not a pushover. There's justice in the heart of God. But what oozes and, out, and flows out from God is his grace. And friends, you and I so, know so, so much more. This God has come down. He's reached down to reveal himself to us. Jesus has come and he tells us, if you've seen me, if you've seen my kindness and my love, yes, my rebuke to the religious, self-righteous people, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus comes to show us what, what God is like. A picture of God, friends, not sculpted by us, but God taking on flesh to come and reveal himself to us. And just as Paul lays hands on Publius's father with a touch of compassion, saying, I see you, you're real, you're recognized, so Jesus comes, sees, and touches so that a leper, one who's been ostracized and separated from the community can see Jesus can cry out to him and say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and says, I am, I will, I am willing. Be clean, be clean. Friends, the scriptures tell us God is just, but not only just. God is merciful and gracious. And the scriptures tell us that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. James tell us, tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy sees that the serpent bite of sin has bitten all of us. But now Jesus has come, the son of the woman, to crush it. And how does Jesus do this? By dying for our sins. And so what is so ironic in the passage is that these islanders semi-deduce something half right, but yet they get it all wrong with Paul. They say, justice has not allowed this man to live. And the irony is that Jesus comes. Jesus comes to take our place. He comes to have our sins laid upon him. He comes to put right what we have done wrong in this world. And because God is just, Justice will not allow Jesus himself to live. Because, friends, in the heart of this God, more even than a desire for justice, is a mercy that beats for sinners like you and I. And because God is merciful and gracious, as we sung about this afternoon, God's justice means that Jesus will die for our sins. God's mercy and God's grace will triumph over a cold, detached, judgment. And this means, friends, that this stage in which we live in this world is not, is, is a time in redemptive history that is marked by God's grace and God's kindness. We sin and we are not immediately struck down, though that is technically what is right. But God in his mercy, mercy is, is patient. Jesus has died for our sins. And God is waiting patiently for us to turn from them and put our faith in Jesus that our sins may be washed away and cleansed. So Peter tells us that we should not mistake or confuse God's patience with us when we persist in sin as though God, God does not care about sin. Peter rather says, no, God's, God's patience, God's failure to 
immediately judge every wrong is God's kindness as he waits for us to take hold of the hope offered to us in the gospel. But friends, the day is coming when Jesus will come back. And as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, the day of salvation that is open to us now where we can call on his name will be over. And those who do not have their sins laid upon Jesus, who do not have Jesus taking the justice that we deserved, will have to face it ourselves. But friends, here we have a God who is at work breaking into this world, revealing that in a broken world, he doesn't just sit back and detach saying, you've made this mess, now live in it. But a God who responds, a God who hears prayers, a God who heals, a God who restores as a sign and a symbol of what his son had came to do and he is still doing in this world. Friends, this means that Jesus' death and his resurrection is, has come to mend what is broken. I want to read a, an excerpt to you from a book that an, a man who came to faith later on in life wrote to describe something of the emotional resonance that the Christian faith has, being so real about our own sin and brokenness and the hope that we have in the gospel. It's a little bit long, but listen in. He describes the, the weight of what Jesus carries for us and then the hope of his resurrection. The he describes Jesus on the cross. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought, as much for him as it has for everyone else who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking in. It's not what he does. It's what he is. Yeshua is all open door to sorrow Suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and he claims it all as his own. This is mine now, Yeshua is saying. And he embraces it with all that is left on him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious. As if it were itself the prodigal son tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it, this evil. So many injured children. Friends, this is what Jesus is carrying. So many injured children. So many locked rooms. So much lonely anger. So many bombs in public places. So much vicious zeal. So many bored teenagers at roadblocks. So many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with. So many jokes that go too far. So much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world, Jesus claims, claims him. It burns and stings. It splinters and gouges. It locks him round and drags him down. Because this is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love going where we go all of us when we end and then later on he describes a woman going to the tomb what does she find 
Early Sunday morning, one of the friends comes back with rags and a jug of water and a box of the grave spices that are supposed to cut down on the smell. She's braced for the task. But when she comes to the grave, she finds the linens being thrown into the corner and the body is gone. She sits. She takes no notice of the feet that begin to appear at the edge of her vision. That's enough now, she thinks. That's more than enough. Suddenly, Yeshua speaks. Don't be afraid, he says. Far more can be mended than you know. She is weeping. The one who was executed helps her to stand up. Friends, at the cross and the resurrection, Jesus in his mercy takes on all of our sin, all the stain of our sin to mend and fix this world. He absorbs it all and death cannot conquer him. The gracious God rises from the dead and comforts those that are grieving and tells her far more can be mended than you know. And Paul, as he stretches out his hands and as he prays for these sick people who don't even acknowledge God, demonstrates something of our gracious God's character. Yes, friends, even on a little island of Malta, the revelation of God and his grace has come to bring life and healing. So, what does this mean for us? I want to end this afternoon by giving us three ways that we can take this God seriously. It's not going to take long. Firstly, friends, we can take this God seriously by receiving God's word of grace. Friends, we can abandon our own efforts of trying to construct our view of God. We can lay aside our man-made golden calves or our distorted views of God. We can cast aside the visions we have, the sense we have of, of God being in our own image, and we can see how Scripture reveals Him, this gracious God, and His gift of righteousness to us, and we can receive it by faith. As the song that we sung earlier said, we, we, can, we can receive His righteousness, not in me, but only in Him. Friends, this is to take Jesus seriously. When people came to Jesus in John chapter 6, they said to him, seeing all the works Jesus was doing, they said, they said, Lord, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And do you know what Jesus says? The work of God is this. You can imagine all ears. And he says, to believe in the one that he sent. To believe. Jesus saying, in me, I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to rise again. Friends, maybe you're here. Maybe... You have made such a mess of your life that you are now working hard to prove to God that you can fix it yourself and you can, you can prove to him that you're serious. Friends, far more can be mended than you know, but not by your own efforts. Receive his righteousness as a gift today by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 30, the Lord longs, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And repentance and rest will be our salvation. Secondly, friends, we must preach the gospel. Number one, if we respond to this by receiving God's word of grace, and I'm not just talking, I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I urge you to put your faith in Jesus. 
But for many of us, friends, we have warped views of God, and I want us to come afresh to this God of grace today. Secondly, let's preach the gospel. Friends, a passage like this shows us why we have to, we must preach the gospel clearly, boldly, and regularly. Friends, to put it bluntly, general revelation, mountains and sunsets cannot save anyone. That's what the Bible shows us. No person can have their sins forgiven by looking at a sunset. Our sins being forgiven comes through a crucified Savior that must be proclaimed. And that message is put in our mouths to proclaim. We, friends, are messengers of reconciliation. And this means with family members and friends and colleagues, we, friends, must preach the gospel. And finally, I want to urge us to be a people and a church who take this God seriously by praying with faith. Friends, if this is the God that we worship, we must take him seriously. And one of the ways we can do this is through prayer. Think about Paul's response here. He lays hands and prays on these sick people. Think about Paul in Acts chapter 27, last Sunday that we heard. Paul's on a ship. Everyone's terrified for their life. Where does Paul go? Into the prayer closet, and he's praying. And in the place of prayer, he meets an angel. God speaks to him. God gives him a word. Called it a prophetic word. 1 Corinthians 14. God gives prophetic words. Why? To edify and encourage and build up the saints in the church. And Paul receives this word and he can go out onto the ship and say, men, take courage. God's told me no one's going to die. All your lives are going to be spared. The angels granted my prayer requests. Friends, the place of prayer. The place of prayer. Friends, the Bible makes many outrageous claims. The, most out, the, the, the category with the most outrageous claims that the Bible makes is all found in this area of us being saved by grace alone. But the next most outrageous categories, or category, the category of the next most outrageous things that God says in the Bible is all about prayer. The most crazy things God says. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open unto you. I could go on and on and on. Friends, God invites us to him to pray. Not every prayer is answered the way that we want it to be. But friends, God responds. We have a God who is bringing his kingdom to bear in our world. God may be gracious to to give miracles, to see people respond to him. God is pleased when we call out to him and call upon his name. So I want to encourage us, friends, as a church in our personal prayer, to be a a praying people. I want us to encourage us to in our prayer for others. Hebrews chapter 6, interestingly, says that the laying on of hands is a foundational doctrine. How often are we praying for other people? How often are we praying? As a pastor, I pray for people a lot. And I often tell people that I'm going to pray for them. I'm like, well, thank you for telling me. I will pray for you. And most of the time, I remember to pray for them. And that's like in the evening or in the morning. But how about if we had a culture where we were just far quicker, more regular, not to just say, I will pray for you, but like, hey, can I pray for you right now? Let's just stop. Let's just come before God. Let's just ask. Let's just lift our voices. Can I lay hands on you? Can I give you a touch the way Jesus did as a sign that you're seen, you're recognized? God sees you and knows you, a sign of compassion. And begin to pray. Friends, this is the God that we see. 
In summary this afternoon, friends, because God has revealed himself to us, and supremely through Jesus, we do not live by trying simply to deduce what God is like, but rather we live by faith in who God has shown himself to be. And we live by drawing near to him in prayer, because God is bringing the kingdom of his son to bear in our world. Yes, it is broken, but his kingdom is coming. Let's close our eyes. I want to ask you for 10 seconds to sit in silence and to ask or meditate on what God has spoken to you about this afternoon, challenged you on. How do you need to respond? And then I'll pray for us. Father, we come before you calling you Father because your Son, who's revealed you to us, invited us to pray to you as our Father. And we come to you, our Father, in confidence because we come clothed in the righteousness of your Son, who has made us to be sons of God. And we come knowing that the Spirit has been poured into our hearts making us alive to God, enabling us to have fellowship with God and empowering us to serve you and to build up your people. And we pray that you would dust out the cobwebs in our minds that have got cloudy or old or distorted in their view of you. It would help us to see you rightly and then to draw near to you by faith through your Son. Help us to to seek for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. To be a prayerful people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.